betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, abandoned by the eleven, forsaken by the Father. Death got three days, and then Jesus crushed it. My name is Joseph Siegel. I'm the lead pastor here at Providence, and if you are a guest especially, we want to say welcome to you this morning. Uh, we are here to celebrate the risen and reigning Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Jesus Christ. We are not in this place because we think that we are better than others. We are in this place because we know that we're not. We know that we're sinners. We know that we're broken. We know that we are messed up people with no hope in ourselves, but with all hope in Christ because of what He has done for us. Reconciling us to the Father through a perfect life that He lived because none of us have done it. None of us have lived sinless, but Jesus did it for us. We deserve to die for our sin, but Jesus, who did not deserve, He took our place. And then through that glorious Easter Sunday morning resurrection that validates the fact that the debt has been paid, He is who He says He is with the power to forgive sins and serves as a preview of coming attractions for all of us. Our future resurrection that Jesus is the first fruits of. And so that is what we are here to do this morning. We are here to celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and over death. And I want to just get started with stating the obvious. Just laying this on the table from the get-go. Christianity, okay, all of it. The whole the truthfulness of the Bible. Our hope at being forgiven of our sins, it all hinges on the historicity of the resurrection. It all hinges on the veracity of the resurrection, whether the resurrection happened or if it did not. Because if Jesus did not rise again, then it's all a lie. If Jesus did not rise again, then Freud and Marx and Nietzsche are all right in their critiques of Christianity. If Jesus did not rise again, we are wasting our time. Paul says this himself in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Jesus has not been resurrected, then we of all people, speaking of Christians, are the most to be pitied among all men because we have hoped in a lie if the resurrection did not happen. But if the resurrection did happen, okay, like, like after Jesus claimed repeatedly to be God incarnate, after he said, I am the way, singular, there's no other, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, okay, if the resurrection happened after Jesus claimed that, if it happened after he claimed four times, I'm going to die and rise again to pay for your sins. If the resurrection happened after he said, I have all authority on heaven and on earth, and I have authority to lay down my life, but not only lay it down, but to take it up again after I'm dead, to make myself undead of my own volition. If the resurrection happened after he said he was the friend of sinners, after he came to seek and save the lost. If the resurrection happened after he died on the cross in our place for our sins as a substitute payment, if the resurrection happened after he claimed all of that, if it happened, 
then it's all true. Tim Keller puts it like this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that He said. If He did not rise from the dead, then why worry about any of it? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like His teaching, but whether or not He rose from the dead. And so to that end this morning, I want to take a couple of minutes and talk about the veracity of the resurrection, the truthfulness, the, the historicity of it. I want to take, talk about the veracity of the resurrection as we make our way through Luke 24. And then we're going to turn and we're going to talk about the glorious victory of the resurrection. Okay, so the veracity of the resurrection and then the victory of the resurrection. That's all we're going to talk about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, grab them and make your way to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one around you somewhere. Grab that, make your way to page 575. If you don't own a Bible, then take one of those that's around you home with you. It is our gift to you. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1, in uh, our normal flow of things, we are going through a study through the book of Ruth. Next week we will be starting chapter 3. We'll just keep making our way, but today we're jumping way ahead to chapter 24. Here we go. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, speaking of the ladies, that are mentioned in the previous chapter, the women, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women, and I want you to note that, it's women here, okay? Note that, we're going to come back to that. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Note that as well. Seven miles away from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Let's pause right there because I want to talk about the veracity of the resurrection for a minute because every single year around this time, the television explodes with all sorts of television shows that are seeking to uh, disprove the resurrection. Right? Seeking to undermine and disprove the resurrection. And in their attempts to do this, they are both absolutely brilliant and absolutely not brilliant at all. They're absolutely brilliant in that they recognize that if the resurrection did not happen, 
If it did not happen, then Christianity falls. It's not true. That, that if the resurrection is actually a falsity, then the few billion of us on earth right now who hope in Jesus as God are gullible. And our hope of a future resurrection life after this one is the hope of deceived idiots who have hope in a lie. Okay? They are brilliant in that they get that. That the resurrection did not happen and the Apostle Paul agrees with them. So they're brilliant in recognizing that. Disprove the veracity of the resurrection, Christianity falls. But where they are absolutely not brilliant is just the ridiculous nature of the theories they throw out there and the grasping at straws almost that they seek to do in trying to undermine it. And so I'm not even really going to spend a whole lot of time on the uh, spare you of the idiocy of the twin theory, which is that Jesus had a twin who hid for 30 years and then showed up and he's like, hey, I'm the resurrected king, okay? That's one. I'm not really going to spend a whole lot of time talking about... Um, the idea of mass hallucination that they all like went to Colorado and picked up some, you know, some weed and brought it back and they all hallucinated, uh, 600 of them hallucinated. I see those on TV and I'm just like, hashtag SMH. But one of the most popular theories, maybe you've heard about, you've probably heard about this one, if you've got any background in Christianity or have ever watched television, is the swoon theory. And this is the theory that Jesus actually did not even die. He didn't die. The Romans didn't complete it. He just passed out. They thought he was dead. They put him in the tomb, but he was just unconscious. Now, a couple of things on this. Number one, the Romans were pretty good at killing people. They were really good at it. You got the Appian Way, and they crucified 6,000 people. Along, like They were professional executors. They knew what they were doing. But to, to hold this theory, one of the most popular ones that's trotted out there, to hold this theory, you've got to hold, like it holds that after Jesus has been beaten for 20 hours, okay, close to 20 hours, beaten brutally, flesh ripped off his back, bones exposed, beaten to a bloody pulp with fists, spit upon, mocked, 20 hours of taking this, a crown of thorns, placed on his head, smacked down and driven into his heads with sticks and rods as they hit him with that, beaten to a bloody pulp after 20 hours of this, right? And then they take him to the cross. He's too weak to even carry the cross. So they've got to get Simon of Cyrene to carry it to Golgotha for him. They get there and they take six-inch metal stakes and drive them through his hands and through his feet. They raise him up. The cross drops down into place with all that weight coming down on his hands and on his feet. And he hangs there for six hours, just bleeding out, asphyxiating, because the way you die on a cross is you can't breathe. You have to raise yourself up to breathe. That's the only way you can do it. So he's on the cross for six hours, bleeding out, asphyxiating. After 20 hours of being beaten brutally, 26 hours of this, he dies. They take a spear, go up under his rib cage, through his lungs, through his heart sack, back out again. Blood and water go all over the cross. After all of that, this theory holds that he was just unconscious and not dead. But not only that, it goes further. This theory then holds that three days later in the tomb, he wakes up out of his unconscious state. And after no medical care for these massive wounds, 
no food, no water, he's suddenly strong enough to get up on his feet that are all broken because they've had six-inch stakes driven through them. They walk over to the stone and with his hose and his beating is strong enough to grab the stone, roll it away, and then go hiking seven miles to Emmaus. I seriously do not know which one requires more faith to believe. All of that, or that Jesus rose again as he said he did, as he said he would. Which one? All right, and so these are the theories that are often tossed out there, but just think with me, like historically, and think through this for a minute. Like if the resurrection did not happen, then how do you account for the fact that the disciples who were absolutely fearful and ran away when Jesus was arrested suddenly over a weekend become absolutely fearless and bold? How, does that, how do you account for that if the resurrection did not happen? How do you account for Peter going from a, a guy who was scared of a little girl becoming perhaps the most fearless and, and bold preacher the world has ever known. If the resurrection did not happen, how do you account for that? Why did that happen? Why were so many so willing all of a sudden over a weekend to give their life for the message of the cross? I mean, you just run through some of the major players in the New Testament. Peter was crucified upside down. James was beheaded. John was first boiled in water and then exiled and he didn't die and then exiled to the island of Patmos. Andrew brutally flogged then hung for two days on an X-shaped cross. Philip was killed at Hierapolis. Bartholomew was beaten, flogged and then also crucified upside down. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. Simon was crucified in Britannia. See the gospels going out. Thaddeus was killed in a riot in what is today Iran. Mattathias was stoned, then beheaded in Jerusalem. Paul was beheaded by Nero. And Thomas, the guy who's called Doubting Thomas because he refused to believe the resurrection until he saw Jesus and touched his side and touched his hands. Doubting Thomas, he got speared with a lance and then cooked alive in an oven on the border of Persia and India. What would it be that would make these guys go through that? They saw it. And now they would run through a brick wall for him because they knew he was Lord of life and death and the universe. And some people are like, well, no, 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 Joe. It's still a lie. People die for lies all the time. They, they think something's real and, and, and so they believe it so much that they're willing to die for it. You are right. You are absolutely right. We saw that this week in Brussels. We saw it in Iraq as well with the soccer bombing. Right? We saw it uh, months ago in San Bernardino. Right? People die for a lie all the time if they don't know it's a lie, if they actually think it's true. But if the resurrection of Jesus is some big hoax, some elaborate hoax that the disciples hatched and they stole the body of Jesus away and 
fabricated this whole story, which is another theory out there, the stolen body theory. Well, while tons of people will die for a lie that they think is true, I don't know many people that will be speared by a lance and cooked in an oven for a hoax that they knew that they made up. Beyond that, without the resurrection, how do you account for the fact that Jesus' family began to worship Him as God? Because I don't care what you do, what you say, if my brother comes to me and says, I'm God, I'm not believing Him, unless he's been saying it his entire life, dies, resurrects, and says, told you so. If this is all just some big hoax, then why would the Gospel writers record that it was women who first found Jesus? Because in the first century, women's uh, testimony was not um, able to, it, it was considered worthless. It would not be allowed in a court. Right? As a matter of fact, it was Christianity that helped uh, begin the changes that has brought women's rights to where they need to be. God created all people in His image. All are equal. All bear His image. Okay? But in the first century, women's testimony did not count. So if I'm making this story up, I gain nothing by stating that it was women who first found him. Matter of fact, that, that weakens my argument. So there's no reason for the writers of the gospel, uh, God, the four gospels, to record that it was women who first found him, unless that's actually what happened. And then finally, without the resurrection, how do you account for 1 Corinthians 15? All right, a historical letter where Paul says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Talking about the Old Testament. That He was buried, that He was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom, Paul's writing this to the church in Corinth, most of whom are still alive as I'm writing you this letter. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so Paul's writing this letter and he's saying, listen, there were 500 guys who saw him at one time. If you don't believe what I'm saying, you can go talk to these 500 guys. And so if this is just some big hoax and he's just you know, making this stuff up, then by saying, go talk to 500 guys, he could be found out to be a fraud if it didn't happen. But he wasn't. Why? Because it happened. We could keep going on and on, but I want to get to the victory part. All right, we've been talking about the veracity of the resurrection. I want to get to the victory of the resurrection. So just to sum up the veracity, the, the truthfulness, the reality of the resurrection... Put it this way, there is not one single alternative hypothesis to the resurrection that can account adequately, all right, explain the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances of Jesus, the courage of the disciples, and the explosion of the church which spread like wildfire because they had seen the Lord. There are theories that can account for one or two, but there's not a theory that can account for all Four of those. The reality is that the resurrection happened. And countless people have become Christians by setting out to disprove 
the resurrection only to get in it and be like, it's true. There's no other, ex- there's like historically, Lee Strobel is one example. And so the resurrection, the reality is it happened. It actually happened. Jesus rose from the dead. All right? So the veracity of the resurrection is solid. But now let's talk about the victory of the resurrection. So look back at verse 13 again in Luke chapter 24. Look at that with me. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near with them and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, this is kind of funny. What is this? As, Jesus, as if Jesus didn't know. What, what's this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he had... And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, this is the Old Testament, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it. And gave it to them. That should sound familiar. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other. Did not our hearts burn within us. While he talked with us on the road. While he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour. And returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together. Saying the Lord has risen indeed. And has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So when we're talking about the resurrection, we are talking about a physical, literal, bodily resurrection, not some ethereal, spiritual deal. All right, we're talking about the fact that Jesus, after he was murdered on Friday, all right, he was dead from Friday afternoon 
until Sunday morning. And then on Sunday morning, he stopped being dead and rose again physically and bodily. And so that's why it's like, hey, I'm hungry. You got anything to eat? Look at verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. All right, forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Okay, this is the victory of the resurrection. That there is forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. That there is freedom from shame and from guilt and from death and from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. There's freedom from it. There's a way for sinners to be made right with God because Jesus suffered and died in our place. And the resurrection shows us, all right, when God raised Jesus from the dead, it's demonstrating that he accepted Christ's suffering. He accepted Christ's death as a full payment for our sin. And no more payment is needed. And that's why Romans 8, there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. None. Jesus drank every drop of the cup of God's wrath against our sin such that there's none left over for us to drink. None. It's not he pays some and we pay some. No, no, no. Jesus paid it all. Every drop. This is what makes the gospel such mind-exploding good news. We don't get what we deserve. Jesus got what we deserve. Just as the scriptures had always said he would, 700 years before he was born, the prophet Isaiah said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. He laid it on Jesus. And so we don't get what we deserve. Jesus got what we deserve. And do you know what we get? We get what Jesus deserved. That's what we get. The, the, the reformer Martin Luther called it the great exchange. We talked about it on Good Friday that on the cross, like just think about this for a minute. Like think about your life. Every sin that you have ever committed. Ever. Every evil thought. Every unknown motive. Every wicked desire, fantasy, wishes, all of that. On the cross, the Father treated Jesus as if He had lived your life. 
as if He had done all of that. So that He could treat you as if you had lived Jesus' life. That's the gospel. It's as if on the cross we traded places with Jesus. He takes our sins away and He gives us His righteousness. See, it's not that on the cross Jesus just gives us a clean slate. No, no, no. It's that He gives us a perfect righteous slate. He gives us His slate and says, take that. Take That's what I'm putting on you. That's what I'm imputing to you. I'm putting that on you. And it's that that makes us able to stand holy and blameless before the Father. Not what we do, but what Jesus did. And so now, watch this, now in Christ, God's love towards you cannot fluctuate up or down based upon what you do because it was never based upon what you do. It's based upon what Jesus did. And so since we are united to Christ through His life, His death, and His resurrection, now in Christ, right, God's love for um, the Father's love for Jesus cannot go, He can't possibly love Jesus any more than He loves Him right now, and He can't possibly love Jesus any less than He loves Him right now. And so we, united to Christ, now God's love for us, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less because His love for you is not based on you, it's based on Jesus. This is the victory of the resurrection. Forgiveness of sins. Freedom from guilt and shame and death and our slavery to sin. The resurrection is sort of like the great exclamation point at the end of all of it, that it's all true. It's the cosmic yes. That all of what God has been doing from the very beginning has been rolling out this coming victory of salvation. He's been bringing it to fruition in His grace and His mercy and His love. And that's the whole point that Jesus is making to disciples there in verse 27 and verse 46 when He talks about the law and the prophets and the writings. He's helping the disciples connect the dots that God's been up to this all along. That from the very beginning and in the worst of situations, in the darkest of moments and times and circumstances that don't make any sense at all, God has been working and is working and will continue to be working all things for the salvation of His people, for the hope of His people, for the joy of His people. This is the grand, like the grand overarching story of the entire Bible. And God is making everything right that's gone wrong in the fall of sin. He's reconciling all things back to Himself through Christ. That's our hope. That's uh, the hope of the Bible. That's the hope of Jesus. And that's the victory that the resurrection secures. God is fixing everything. He's forgiving sinners. And our final enemy of death has been defanged. And will someday be gone. Paraphrasing the early church father, John Chrysostom, in his famous Easter homily. Let no one fear death. For the death of our Savior has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. He destroyed it when He descended into it. He put it into an uproar, even as it tasted of His flesh. 
It was in an uproar because it was done away with. It was in an uproar because it is mocked. It was in an uproar for it is destroyed. It is in an uproar for it is annihilated. It is in an uproar for it is now made captive. It took a body and it discovered God. It took earth and it encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. So now we can say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? It's gone because Jesus stole it away forever and has given its victory to you and me. Let's pray and then let's keep singing and praying. Father, we thank you for the victory you have won through Christ. Jesus, we thank you for overcoming the grave. And we sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. We thank you that the wrath has been left on the tree and there's no more left for us to bear. And we sing worthy is the Lamb to receive all power and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing for Jesus. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people back to God from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, and from every language. You made a way for us when we did not deserve a way. But we have all, like sheep, gone astray. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all rebelled and are depraved in our sinfulness and are deserving of nothing. But in Grace, because of your love and your mercy, you have made us alive together with Christ. You've made all who believe, all who will receive you as Lord and Savior. You have rescued us and you've made us alive together with Christ. You've forgiven us. You've rescued us. And we praise your name. You have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You've done it. And we praise you and glorify you.